So doing this message series has um, got me thinking about when was the first time that I actually heard or saw written the, the word happiness. Like it's really rare that I can actually remember the context in which I learned a word for the first time. Like the, the longest word in the English language, anti-disestablishmentarianism, if you happen to know that one. Uh, that actually Unitarians factor into the history of that. I learned that in SAT course and then promptly forgot it. Until I was in seminary again and remembered that it had to do with the process by which the state churches, which were originally sort of Calvinist in New England, were disestablished from being sponsored by the state. Unitarians were behind that process and those who opposed them were the anti-disestablishmentarian folks. Longest word in the English language. If you didn't learn anything else here today, you've learned that and you're welcome. (laughs) For the first time that I learned the word happiness. I'm almost positive this was it. And it looks something like this. Remember this? Happiness is dot, dot, dot. If you were sort of close to my age or, you know, maybe 10 years old or 10 years younger, I might fathom a guess that this is where you first saw the word happiness printed. I love the peanuts. Happiness is 18 different colors. Oh, man, absolutely. Happiness is 18 different cultures. And this one, probably the most famous one of all time. Happiness is a warm puppy. Everyone say it together. Aw, come on. Some of you are not whimsical enough. So everyone say, ah, there we go. Okay, engage your whimsy muscle. It's really important. Really important if you want to stay young at heart. We're very serious adults here. And actually, I I love the fact that Lucy is featured on the cover there. I think Lucy has gotten a really, really bad rap. I think it it was Charlie Brown who was at fault. He was the idiot who kept repeating the same thing over and over and over again and trying to kick that football. I think if he just would have recognized that's a definition of insanity, doing the same thing, expecting a different result. If he could have held back from that, Lucy could have gone on and done different things with her life and not gotten pigeonholed as, you know... The mean woman who didn't let him do what he wanted to do. So leaving the sexual politics of peanuts aside for now, I want to say, yes, happiness is a warm puppy, but especially for the purposes of this message series, happiness is, is, is more than that. You know, happiness could be a hug or a warm puppy or a mountain of ice cream covered in chocolate, but that's a pleasurable thing. And pleasurable things are, are you know, wonderful, but that's not all of what happiness really is. In a mature vision, to make this real, we just saw that happiness is a warm puppy, I think it extends caring for that puppy as well, too. It extends perhaps to spending volunteer time in an animal shelter or working for anti-cruelty laws. This is what happiness is according to the deepest and the best understanding of happiness, which isn't all that difficult to understand, actually. It's Tal Ben-Shahar, who for years taught the most popular course at Harvard University, most popular undergraduate course. He says that happiness, true happiness, is the experience of pleasure in the context of purpose. It is positive emotions in connections with meaningful experiences. And so alongside just the pleasure of the warm puppy, there is on some deeper level that commitment to care that renders that relationship meaningful. If happiness is, and I really believe it is, the most sustainable path to us flourishing in this life, I do believe that the key ingredients found over and over again in the studies of happiness, but also just in the people we know who we would experience as most happy, it is meaningful and sustained relationships. 
Martin Seligman, who teaches at UPenn and has written probably more about happiness than anyone else has recently in the last couple decades, has a wonderful phrase to talk about the sort of structure, both mentally and sometimes relationally, by which we experience deep happiness in our lives. He calls it spiritual furniture. And he relates this to the, the dynamic that he's recognized, that even as living standards, especially in America, have grown, have risen in the last few decades, leaving out the last few years, certainly, that our happiness level doesn't seem to be growing all that much. He relates it to something else that has changed in American life, which is with all the mobility and all the choice that many of us, not all of us have, but many of us experience. And those are good things. There's a shadow side. He talks about it in this way. He says that individual failure used to be, for many people, buffeted, strengthened by a larger sense of a we being there. When our grandparents failed, they tended to have more comfortable spiritual furniture that they could rely upon and rest in. Martin Seligman gets me thinking that what I believe is that actually the opposite of happiness is not sadness. Some of the happiest people I know are people who can experience real, true sadness and loss in this life. The opposite of happiness is not sadness. The opposite of happiness is loneliness. The sense of not being connected to those sustaining relationships, not having spiritual furniture that we believe we can count on. And Seligman does even more research. He's organized all studies about this. He's organized some of his students about this. And he encourages them to sort of get in two groups, two equal-sized groups, and he encourages one of them to list the amount of pleasures they have in a week. By pleasures, it's, you know, going out and taking a walk on a nice day or having someone serve you a nice meal. On the other side, he puts another category of group of people called gratifications. Those are people who spend their time during the week focusing on engaging with other people in service or relationship or in some kinds of things that expresses gratitude. At the end of the week, and he's found this replicated over and over again, the people who are most happy, most sustainably happy, are the people who are not engaging in the most pleasures. It is people who are engaging in the most gratifications, people who are experiencing pleasure and purpose together in their lives. I think we see some of the futility of the pleasure-seeking model of life as thinking it will get us happiness. And what many of us know, if we'll cop to and be honest, with our tendency, some of us, towards retail therapy. I think we all know that when we go shopping for something new and we really, really, really want it. This, by the way, is some of what we're going to be talking about. That small group will be talking about in the wanting what you have small group. We want it and we get it and... You know, maybe some of us get a high-def TV and we're still really loving it. But, you know, eventually, you know, the happiness level returns to where it came from before. And this is a great phrase they use in people who study happiness. They talk about it as the hedonic treadmill, hedonic like hedonism. The challenge can be is that we get that new thing that we really want. And then after a while, it's eh, okay. We don't just get another one of them. We get more of another one of them. And we keep raising the stakes and raising the stakes and raising the stakes to this point where ultimately even our search for pleasure is not sustainable. Gratifications on the other side, which has the same root as the Latin word grace, gift. Gratifications are such that they draw us out into relationship with the lives of other people in meaningful ways. And by the way, this is one of, for people who study 
the health benefits of belonging to spiritual community, people who study the psychological benefits of belonging to the spiritual community, regardless of denomination, regardless of creed, regardless of doctrine. This is what many folks have identified as the single, single most important ingredient and benefit of belonging to the spiritual community. It's that we get to belong. We get to experience gratifications on a deeper, more regular level. And yet... The history of religious thought and teaching about the nature of being a part of something, that's actually pretty spotty. Just to share a couple of examples with you. The Buddha, the great teacher, eventually in the ways and the paths of cultivating happiness in this life. Buddha, just before he left his gilded palace and left his family behind for him to pursue his path, he named his son in a way that translates as Fetter. As something that clings to him and holds him back. Jesus encouraged people at times to hate their families to follow him. And perhaps in the worst story of all of this, the binding of Isaac, where Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his son. Now, these stories have been interpreted and reinterpreted over and over again. And if we don't take them literally, they're all about how we care for something without non-attachment. But still... Too often, stories in religious communities are about severing the ties that bind, about thinking that somehow we are self-created and only as free as we are far from each other. Our tradition is very much guilty of this, and it is guilty in one of its prime sources. The first time that I ever read anything by Ralph Waldo Emerson, the gigantic intellect spiritual teacher, someone who I read regularly for spiritual nourishment in my own life, the first time I read him was Self-Reliance. Any of you remember that? Essay, yeah, okay, you got it there. Self-reliance has a lot that's still good to say. When I read it in 15, I thought the doors had blown up on my life. I understood everything now. I mean, what self-reliance was teaching is, you know what, really own your understanding of truth. You know, don't just take what other people are offering you and look at it without investigating it. Really understand it and make it your own. And that's the great part of self-reliance. The other part of self-reliance is a kind of completely decadent immaturity. It says only that I am as free as I push myself away from anything that would be inherited. There is a kind of perpetual adolescence in Emerson that really is very immature. And yet, even Emerson himself, with his poetry, if not with his philosophy, understood the deeper truth of what it was to be connected at some deep, inseparable level. When he experienced that pain that is the worst kind of pain a parent can experience, when he lost his son and wrote a beautiful poem called Threnody about it, he understood the truth. And he wrote, the greater fate that carried thee took the largest part of me. He understood that even with self-reliance, there is still relationship that can never be severed. I think in our time, more and more spiritual teachers and religious leaders are recognizing us and inviting us to honor the truth of interdependence. Bishop Tutu said this. He has led millions on the path toward greater freedom because he believes in the essential nature of relationship. He said interdependence means that we are people only through other people. We cannot be fully human alone. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the quality 
of interbeing, of recognizing the deep cellular, moral, spiritual level at which our lives are both creative of other people's lives and are created by them as well. All that they are saying is we are inherently social creatures and we should try to honor that as best we can, even when sometimes it appears in rather silly ways. I think I told a few of you this a few years ago. Uh, my wife and I were leaving here after an Easter service and we were pulling in to pick up one more thing for that. We we're going to make for dinner at the Superfresh right down here at 113. And we were parked there just kind of, you know, doing a postgame analysis of the service here. And a woman pulled in next to us in one of the spots that if you've been in that Superfresh, that there's uh, said, uh, you know, parking for. It's really sexist, actually. It should be dads. It should be parents. But I think it's moms and young kids. You know, you can park close and you have like 15 or 20 minutes. You got to come back out. Well, this woman was, I think, maybe 75 and did not have any kids in her back seat or with her in the car. And she pulled in and I kind of hunched down in my car so she wouldn't see me seeing her. But she assumed that someone was going to see her because she looked this way and she looked that way and she looked all around her. And seeing that she thought no one had seen her, she parked her car and went in. I mean, that's interdependence. That's the shadow side of interdependence, which is that, you know, there may always be someone watching. But in the deepest sense, the most mature sense, we are born into this life, yes, truly dependent, truly in need. And then many of us, many of us hopefully reach that age where we become independent. Adolescent, I will chart my own path in this life. And some of us stay there right until the end of our lives. And some of us have the glory, not just the function of age, but a function of spirit and of mind, of growing into that deeper form of relationship known as interdependence, which allows us to truly create and fashion a happy life for ourselves. The poet Muriel Rukeyser wrote these words, which I believe are absolutely true morally and spiritually, if not scientifically, when she said that our universe is made up of stories. Our universe is not made up of atoms. I think one of the ways to think about our happiness in life is to ask ourselves. And I encourage you to ask yourself this. How many stories do you know of other people and how many other people really know your story? I don't think we can count it like the fingers in our hand. Well, I know this many stories, so I should be this happy. But I think there is a correlation there between knowing other stories and sharing our stories and knowing that we are connected to some deep and profound level. It is to recognize the truth of what the wonderful Quaker teacher Parker Palmer asked, which is the minute, the minute we ask the oldest philosophical question there is, who am I? It yields to a deeper question. Whose am I? Who do I belong to? Who do I and what do I set my heart upon? I think if we have this understanding of happiness, it transcends that very simplistic choice that sometimes it seems as if we are offered. In which there's one camp who says, you are only happy because other people can make you happy. And then there's another camp over here that says, I choose to make myself happy and no one else can. But the truth is somewhere in the middle between that. It is much more dynamic and much more interactive and much less about a single choice. I think truly, as I recognize happiness in my own life, is that it emerges. It emerges day after day and week after week and year after year out of countless quality, sometimes very small interactions with people who are on a number of levels dear to me. These are investments we make in life over time that truly do add up and allow us to experience greater happiness in life. I think of the truth of this 
when I listen to the words of one of my heroes. If you've been around for a while, you absolutely know that I love Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. He does this amazing riff, and sometimes he does it during uh, Spirit in the Night, and sometimes he does it during uh, 10th Avenue Freezeout when he tells the, the sort of mythological history of the band and how they came together. He loves to tell these sort of mythological stories in which he's wandering along a dark country load, road late at night, and he's by himself, and he has to pass through the dark forest of the trees, and on the other side of the dark trees, there's a river that he's got to cross by himself, and on the other side... There's, there's a gypsy woman waiting, waiting for him, waiting to tell his future, waiting to tell his, his history. And this one recitation I heard, she says simply to Bruce as the young man long time ago, you need a band. You need some help. I think that's true for our happiness. We need a band. We need some help. We recognize that our freedom and our happiness emerge alongside of each other. And invite us to become ourselves. They invite the inherent qualities within us as individuals to come forward and to be made real. It is to make real also on one of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings that like a good gardeners, we strive to create the right conditions for our spiritual growth. I think it is the same thing with our happiness in life as well, too, because as good of seeds as we might have and good seeds are necessary to grow a good crop. Good seeds do not exist in isolation from themselves. There needs to be good soil and good treatment and good cultivation. It is the fullness of the field to which and through which we can understand our happiness. Another image I particularly like is Rumi's. The great mystical poet said, a wall standing alone is useless. But put three or four walls together and they will support a roof and keep The grain dry and safe. When ink joins a pen, then a blank paper can say something. Rushes and weeds must be woven to be useful as a mat. If they were not interlaced, the wind would blow them away. We see a great example of this kind of happiness, of the quality of our interactions with each other, inviting our freedom, inviting deeper happiness with a movie that right now, from what I understand, at least is supposed to be the odds on favor to sort of sweep the Academy Awards. It's the King's Speech. How many of you have seen that? Okay, so some of you are familiar with it. I'm going to try not to give it away, um, but it's the basic story of King Edward VI, who before he was King Edward, before he ascended to the throne... He had this horrendous source of shame within his life, which is that he had this stutter, this stutter that would not allow him to communicate in the ways that he felt called to communicate. His elder brother, who was to be king before he abdicated, held this stutter over him, tormented him with it. Now, the pressure within this young man who was to be king at such an important time, just before England was to go to war against Nazi Germany. He was told by his father, the previous king, that in the age of broadcast, it was so important that a leader be able to communicate to thousands or millions of people at a time. And for the young man who would become king, this just makes him feel horrendous about himself because he cannot do it on his own. Until he finds a tutor, a teacher. Someone to invite him into a way of being in which he can share his true voice with the world. 
And the climactic scene of the film, the scene where he is talking, King Edward VI, to the British people about the difficulties that will come in time to come in the World War just begun. You see the tutor, really the coach, in the same room with him, not saying a single thing, but encouraging him, bringing him along, loving him into speech almost, inviting him Remember the breath, as we try to invite each other to do here all the time. I love this image because it shows so beautifully and so wonderfully, and also from a real-world experience, about interdependence and how it can really work when we allow our lives to be permission-giving for another person's gifts to come out and for our own gifts to be made real. I'm going to be talking more about this kind of work and this understanding of our work in the weeks to come in this message series on happiness. But let me just say for now that when I understand my own work in this way, something wonderful happens and is directly related to my happiness. I remember that I am not the center of the universe. I am simply blessed to be a part of the universe. And that, well, this is my peace and my life and my role to play within it and do the best that I can for the relationships that I know and those beyond. This simultaneously lets me down and lifts me up. Last week, I talked about three simple three-word sentences that invite us into deeper happiness in our loving relationships. I am sorry, I love you, and I don't know. But let me add even a simpler sentence to that. (laughs) The basic one that takes us back to the heart of gratifications. And that is really the heart of the affect of happiness. The evil and simpler sentence is this. Thank you. To be able to recognize all the gifts here, there, everywhere. To be able to say thank you. The simplest and most necessary sentence in a happy life. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Great source of being. May we recognize the connection. Be thankful for the connections. Foster the connections. Heal the connections. Love the connections. Live in the connections. Be conscious in the connections. May we be loved in the connections. Live in that place, sharing our gifts, recognizing others' gifts. Be aware this day of being held in that interdependent web, both created and still creating through the works of our hands.
Amen.